Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. Now, for those of you who haven't done so, make sure that you are connected to us. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And also, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. So if you missed the live broadcast or the streaming, you can always check out these episodes uh, at your convenience. And we're on SoundCloud, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn, and anywhere else that you'll get your podcast at. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. All right, Radio Islam family, uh, I am happy to have joining us on the line um, Professor Hafsa Kanjwal, uh, and she is an assistant professor of South Asian history at Lafayette College. Her PhD from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, uh, was on the social history of the modern Kashmir, and that's what we're going to be talking about um, today. She actually, uh, she recently wrote a global opinion piece that was in the Washington Post, uh, February 22nd. And it was titled as India Beats Its War Drums Over Pulwama, uh, Its Occupation of Kashmir is Being Ignored. So many of you are paying attention to the uh, heightened tensions going on right now. And some folks are just finding out, right? This was not on a lot of folks' radar, but uh, it is right now. So I'm happy to welcome Hafsa to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you so much for having me. It is our pleasure. So can we talk first off about the article and let folks know where uh, what was the point that you were coming from and, and trying to uh, get people to, to think about? Yeah, that's that's a good starting point. So for me, as a Kashmiri sort of living in America, who is very much in touch with things that are happening in Kashmir, um, when the attack happened, immediately sort of the issue became about India and Pakistan. Um, so you had all these Indian journalists, commentators, politicians talking about Pakistani terrorism, and then you had, or Pakistani-sponsored terrorism, and then you had Pakistanis talking about how, um, you know, it wasn't an issue of terrorism and they don't want to go to war or what have you. So even though the issue, the root cause of the conflict between the two countries is Kashmir, it was being erased um, in these discussions. And America, the American media, like, really, really was um, was doing that. So I felt that I needed to write and kind of bring the Kashmiris back into the narrative because they're the ones that keep getting erased, and yet the brunt of the violence in the region um, falls upon them. Right, right. And and speaking of that violence, um, that violence has been largely attributed to the uh, Indian military. Is that correct? Yes, it's the Indian military, yeah. Yeah. So um, from what I understand, Amnesty International, they have uh, their research. They've documented a number of, uh, of, of classifications of violations uh, that have taken place. Uh, and this is all behind a force of almost a million, uh, almost a million police soldiers um, that are stationed that have been in the, uh, the Kashmir for how, how long? So um, initially, sort of the Indian military came in in 1947 mm -hmm. um, when the, the Maharaja, the ruler, the Hindu ruler of Kashmir, uh, wanted protection from a tribal army from Pakistan. So the military was there actually from 47 itself. Um, but mostly the military was not in civilian areas. It was at the border with Pakistan because the two countries 
kept going to war. Um, but what ends up happening is in the 19, late 1980s, there's an armed uprising against the Indian um, against Indian rule in Kashmir, and that's where you have a huge surge of um, Indian troops coming in and in civilian areas, um, affecting effectively making it an occupation, an occupied territory. Mm. Now, when you talk about getting to the root of the violence, um, because I think often when we're looking, whatever the context may be, or I should say whenever the, the occasion of violence may come up, I think often the context is not, uh, is not really taken into consideration. Um, so we're talking about an occupied, an occupied land that has largely expressed its, um, its, its, its rejection of that occupation through nonviolent, uh, through nonviolent means uh, initially. Is it, should this surprise people? Should people be surprised at, you know, that there is a graduation, that if, if there's not a response to that nonviolent response, that at some point there would be people who would, who would go a different route? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's a really important question. So initially, even from 1947, Kashmiris tried to protest nonviolently for decades. I mean, they tried to use the constitutional means um, they, that the UN mandated plebiscite be held, and um, India just did not allow that. So it was really only in the late 1980s when, you know, you have sort of these global Islamist movements around the world, um, and then you have the end of the Soviet Union, um, which was defeated by an actual armed struggle that Kashmiris kind of thought, okay, well, maybe this is how we can get rid of our oppressors. If it worked in Afghanistan, um, maybe it can work here. So for the longest time, they did not go the violent route. And then they, they eventually were sort of pulled into a corner. Um, and then there was a second round of sort of mass peaceful protests starting in 2008 by the generation that grew up under the militancy or under um, the militarization. And they also came to the streets peacefully protesting um, in really large numbers. I mean, I think at one point um, there were about one million people marching to the United Nations in 2008, 2010. Um, and the Indian government did not want that to happen. It didn't want those images. It didn't this idea that you have these Muslims, right, who are peacefully protesting um, to go out into the world and have sort of gain international sympathy. So they responded violently to those protests. Um, they would fire live you know, um, ammunition and later on using pellet guns, um, which has blinded so many Kashmiri youth into these crowds. Mm -hmm. And the violence was not just in the form of protests. It was in many ways. I mean, an occupation isn't just the military. It's in every fabric of society. Um, so young people are not able to express themselves. Student organizations are not allowed to um, sort of cohere uh, their internet activities monitored. People are constantly getting arrested, intimidated, threatened. So when you make no space for peaceful protest or civil disobedience, then it's very difficult. I mean, it's not difficult to imagine that um, young people would turn to more violent means. Um, so that that violence isn't what the way that India is making the conflict be is that it's this violence by the youth that's the reason, you know, why this conflict exists and why there's trouble in the region um, and it's sponsored by Pakistan. But it doesn't it doesn't actually that kind of obscures the fact that there is a violent occupation in place that these young people are responding to. Right. 
like violence, um, uh, unfortunately, often begets more violence. Um, I have to ask this. Um, you said that the attention, the attention has been around the, was it 49 Indian soldiers that were, um, that were killed in the, in the, in the bombing, the, the, the truck bombing. Um, right. Around 40, 44, 45. 44, yeah. 45. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the distinction I think was important. Once again, context, the distinction that these were, uh, these were state actors. These were not civilians. Mm-hmm. Um, even in making that distinction, uh, you know, I, th- I think that's a critical point that I like you to um, speak to in terms of how, once again, that the uh, the folks that are really that are paying for or they, that are being retaliated against mm-hmm. are Kashmiri uh, uh, civilians. And right. from what I understand, uh, you wrote about that that this is something that's also that is taking place within India, where you have citizens, res- residents, students, whatever that are being uh, targeted and attacked. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so I, I wanted to maybe draw a bit more about the earlier point that you made about sort of the the attack was framed as a terrorist attack. But yeah. even when you have sort of the most, um, you know, the most common explanations of terrorism, which I don't think that attack uh, applied to that, is it's against civilians. It's not against other armed combatants. Right. So if we view the Kashmir issue of, you know, one army basically fighting against these kind of ragtag group of young militants um, that an attack on the 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 civil or, or on the armed forces is an attack just as the as the armed forces fight back as well it's just that one gets touted as terrorism where the other is just you know just regular old war right. um, so and then in terms of the actual civilians in um, India there are a number of Kashmiris that study in India in different cities um, and they, and they already have a really difficult time because they are already sort of seen as a threat. But in moments like this, when there's so much heightened nationalism and the Indian media is kind of peddling this idea that all Kashmiris are terrorists or terrorist sympathizers, then in an already hostile environment towards Kashmiris, you have um, accelerated violence. Um, so a lot of students had to go into hiding. Um, some were beaten up. Uh, they eventually had to find flights to go back to Kashmir. And it's ironic because Kashmir itself is the battle zone, right? But they're fleeing India to go to Kashmir um, because for them, India was much more unsafe. Wow. Wow. Now, you talked about, as a matter of fact, you wrote about this as well. You mentioned uh, that when military are in contact with protesters, uh, peaceful protesters, uh, no less, they are discharged or disrupting crowds or firing into crowds with these uh, pellet guns. And uh, Mm -hmm. according to, I believe these uh, stats are from the, from Amnesty uh, International, I think uh, says that the number of uh, Kashmiri blinded by Indian firing was at 188, but that was at the time of that report. So um, we would imagine that those numbers have uh, undoubtedly increased. Uh, what mm-hmm. what is the response? And that's just one of the uh, one of the, the data points that's given with regard to uh, violence inflicted upon uh, Kashmiri uh, uh, citizens. Um, what is the response from Indians in general uh, with regard to this type of violence that's being uh, enacted by the Indian military? Is there a response? Um, 
for most Indians, I mean, most Indians are egging these kinds of actions on. I mean, India today is um, sort of even more communal, more hysterical um, than Pakistan, which gets touted as a failed nation state. Mm. Um, but India today is kind of, there's unbridled uh, right-wing Hindu nationalism in full display. And so these, you know, these attacks on um, these citizens are just seen as completely defensible because these are people who are terrorists. They're trying to secede from our uh, from our nation. So anything anything is fair. Um, there is a small segment sort of within this Indian liberal um, uh, sentiment that you know is probably against um, acts of human rights violations, but for them, India or Kashmir is still a part of India. Um, they don't they don't acknowledge that there's a political dispute that's at this center of the issue. Um, they just are upset that these excesses happen because they feel that Kashmiris will get more alienated from India. But they don't understand that the alienation, it's not alienation that's that's the issue. It's that Kashmiris never have felt part of India. Right. Now, there is a quest for and a deep desire uh, for self-determination, uh, self-rule, self-governance. How is that? Is, is that would you say that's the majority of Kashmiris or is that, you know, or is there some diversity of opinion? Um, you know, aside from sort of a more elite class that has benefited from the Indian occupation, um, and these are Kashmiris themselves, right? In every kind of colonial occupied context, you have a class of local enablers that can set up that system. So I would say aside from that class, the vast majority of the Kashmiris would want self-determination. Um, you know, it's unclear whether that would mean um, a merger with Pakistan or full sort of like an independent state, um, because, you know, no, no plebiscite or referendum has ever taken place. So there is a fairly strong pro-Pakistan sentiment. Um, there's also a very strong pro-independent sentiment. But it remains to be seen sort of what would be representative of the majority of the people. Mm. Now, when it comes to when it comes to violence, um, is it I, I shouldn't say is it lost in you because I'm sure it's not. But um, I think in general, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, that it may be lost on people, uh, particularly here in the United States, when it comes to when it comes to violence being used to further um, political aims or being used as a um, as a pathway to liberation. Uh, that is the history of the United States. Um, but it seems to be that when there is violence and it is particularly from non or it is engaged in by non uh, European peoples that um, it's looked at in a different way. Uh, do you do you think that that that's something that people are conscious of or or do you have a different opinion? Um, do you mean that's what the Kashmiris might be conscious of or people here? Yeah, people here. Not so much the Kashmiris, but the people here, uh, because I think that relates to the, the coverage and how it's perceived. Yeah. So, I, you know, unfortunately, what's happened is that the war on terror rhetoric has kind of subsumed any and all political activism. So if there are legitimate movements around the world um, that are using violence, not, you know, as an end, but as a means then everything gets subsumed within that rhetoric. Mm -hmm. um, 
for, you know, if we think about the anti-colonial struggles in places like Algeria, violence was integral to, as a, you know, as a way for um, the movements there to gain liberation, to make it so that the French felt that the cost of being in France or the being in Algeria was too high um, and that they would have to leave. So similarly, um, you know, I think these acts of violence play another role in, in Kashmir, at least, is that, you know, when the Indian state goes and attacks civilians, massacres civilians, um, kills the rebel, the rebel leaders, um, the international community doesn't really budge. I mean, nobody really pays attention. But it's only when these kinds of attacks happen that it, that the Kashmir issue then gets brought out to the international forum again. Of course, their voices are being erased, but at least it's being discussed. And it's similar in the context of Palestine, where, you know, mm. the violence of the occupation is an everyday occupation, both in Palestine and in Kashmir. It's only when Hamas sort of shoots their rockets that the whole world is in an uproar. Um, but at least it gets them talking, right? Right. So... Um, yeah, I think this issue of violence has just been completely overtaken by the war on terror rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And it's unfortunate because then these people's aspirations are um, are dismissed because they are affiliated with that. Right. Do you do you foresee any type of intervention um, outside of intervention that that's going to help to bring about some type of a, a peaceful resolution? I mean, we're looking like I said, we generally look back to 47 we look back to the partition um as the as the root when this all began but and and mm -hmm. it has not come to a resolution uh to this point do you foresee any type of external involvement from from other state actors that uh that might lead to a resolution i think uh, any at this point right now any external involvement would just kind of maintain the status quo um, so China, Russia, the United States, for example, it, it's not in the international community's interest to have the two countries go to war. Um, so they are doing everything they can behind the scenes to make sure that that doesn't happen, especially because of the nuclear threat. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't see any country really actually addressing the root issue, um, which is Kashmir and the fact that the people there have been denied their um, political, you know, the right to self-determination. So things would have to really significantly change um, in kind of the global kind of pool arena for that to happen. Um, I wish Muslim majority countries would put greater pressure on India. Most of them have strong business and economic ties with India that they would be at the level um, to do so. But they're already so divided in so many other places that I don't think Kashmir would be, um, you know, of, uh, of interest to them right now. So... I'm not I'm not too hopeful about what can happen, at least in the near future. Mm. Well, I'm glad you brought that up as far as Muslim majority countries are concerned. Um, do you think that uh, that because of the I guess we are we are living out, we're seeing this this interdependence or maybe not necessarily just an uh, interdependence, but a a dependence on Western economy? Um, for some of these uh, Muslim countries and whether it's just outright uh, trade or foreign aid, or, you know, whatever the other factors are that have um, compromised them, uh, compromised their, you know, them, them standing up and, and, uh, and, and 
showing some type of resistance or standing in support of other Muslim uh, populations that are that are under fire. Um, well, I guess that was more of a statement than it was a question. But but but, but mm-hmm. would you agree that there is a that maybe the foreign uh, involvement or there there are other issues that have taken priority, not necessarily conflicts or anything like that, but there are, there are other issues, yeah, that are taken that have taken priority. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that's definitely the case. But I would say that you know when we think about move struggles for liberation. Um, you know, as a Kashmiri, I think about it more collectively, you know, in that there are, there is sort of this global nexus right now, the U.S., India, Israel, unfortunately, some of the Muslim majority countries, the UAE, mm-hmm. um, Saudi Arabia, that are kind of touting a very different world order. Um, and then there are these other countries that could potentially, you know, have have a different approach, but they need to be strengthened and their institutions need to be strengthened. Um, so, you know, for me, like Kashmiri liberation is tied to the liberation of the Palestinians, tied mm-hmm. to the fate of um, the black community in the United States. I mean, these are all communities that are kind of dealing with this corporate military industrial complex, um, as well as the rise of sort of right wing fascist nationalism. So, you know, they're they're all interconnected. So I think the solution also has to be interconnected. I guess one of the final questions I want to ask is if the if the statistics that are associated with the Indian Indian military's presence um, in Kashmir, if they were attributed to say if they are attributed to the United States, um, mm-hmm. if they were if 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 our troops were stationed anywhere just pick a pick a place and and these types of same numbers were associated with them uh and i'm going to just read off a few of these and i want to ask you what would be or would there be a, a a national not just a national would there be a global response because i think that's one of the important things about this conversation and and what you do um is that it hopefully brings some awareness right but when you hear these numbers, you, you, you ask yourself, well, at least I ask myself, why is why are why are we just now starting to have these conversations, uh, you know, in, in, in with more frequency? So right now we have custodial killings by Indian Army. And this is, of course, at the time of this report, we're listed at seven thousand forty eight uh, gang rapes by um, by Indians in Kashmir, ten thousand two hundred eighty three uh, Kashmiri blinded by Indian firing. Uh, and if you all, I don't know if you, you let folks know where you wrote the piece, where it, where it showed up at, you know, I was talking about the dead eyes. Um, mm-hmm. but that's listed at 188 Kashmiri kids, orphaned 20,085 Kashmiri women, widowed 20,005, uh, Kashmiri buildings destroyed 106,071. I mean, you think about the, the magnitude of these numbers and, and, and there are more, there are more, um, points here. If this was happening elsewhere or and, and, and if this was happening uh, and it was our own government, our own military that was, you know, that we're pointing to that's that these numbers would be attributed to. Would there be a global response, not even just a national response? Mm-hmm. 
You know, I, I think if it was a Muslim country that was doing all of this, then for sure there would be a global response. Um, and it's, of course, if it was a Muslim majority country that had certain resources like oil or what have you, there would be a response. But, um, you know, with, with countries like India, with countries like Israel and the United States, they're they're kind of able to get away with what they do. I mean, the U.S. I I still can't believe that people in America don't talk about Afghanistan and Iraq and what the U.S. did there. Yeah. Um, and you know, just to give you a comparison, maybe at the height of either of those wars, there might have been 150,000 U.S. troops that mm-hmm. that were deployed. And again, we're talking about 700,000 Indian troops in Kashmir. Yeah. Um, so just you can just imagine how high and how dense that occupation is. Um, and it's such a big deal, of course, for Americans to talk about their 100,000 um, troops here and there. Um, but, you know, there's no there's no accountability, such little accountability, um, because these are the powers that are kind of at the helm of, of global politics right now. So, of course, there are movements from below that seek to check that or change it, but... You know, something needs to change much more radically for um, for all of this to kind of be brought to the fore. Mm. Well, thank you very much. And I think we want to take away uh, one of the points for me that it's extremely important to remember that the world order we see or the injustices that we see are collectively maintained. So there's mm-hmm. going to take a collective response, uh, especially on the on the behalf of those who are affected. To, to really address it in a way that's going to bring about any type of a, a lasting uh, uh, change. Well, we thank you so very much. Uh, and hopefully those who are listening will add their voices to the conversation. Uh, so we thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. That was Dr. Hafsa Kanjwal, Assistant Professor of South Asian History at Lafayette College. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam on WCEV 1450 AM.